Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Kate Campbell, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. How are you going? Q&A style, and I am well, Owen. Yeah, Q&A style indeed. Today we're talking... Uh, we're talking about stock lending, we're talking about tax, we're talking about diversification. We're answering your questions. If you do have questions, you can send them to podcast at rask.com.au uh, or now you can uh, submit your questions two other ways. One is you can go to the Rask Facebook page and join the group there, totally free to join. Or if you're a Rask ETFs member, we now have discussion boards and there are heaps of different topics underway in there uh, and I'm in there every day. And so, there's monthly lives happening? Monthly lives happening inside Rask ETFs as well. So jump in there uh, and it's basically, yeah, Question yeah. and answers every day. And I just wanted to shout out um, recently on the Australian Investors Podcast, you were doing a passive income series with Drew, financial advisor, yep. and you did a passive income Q&A where you answered about 10 plus listener questions. We got questions. so many questions yes, for you, the Q&A. You hit a topic of great interest. Yeah. So, I if, mean, if passive, income passive income is something that you're interested in, uh, so if you want to build a portfolio that gets you dividends head to the Australian Investors Podcast in your podcast player. It's also on RAS Media if you just search on there. But um, I'd say yeah, that's it's, more of an intermediate level series. So yeah. it probably is relevant for many of our longer term listeners. Yeah, if you've been listening to this podcast for three years and um, you're starting to develop a portfolio and you want income from it, jump over onto that podcast where Drew and I talk about portfolio construction. We talk about all the different buckets and how to combine it. It's really yeah. fascinating. And you've been having a lot of conversations as well about um, – dividends and uh, dividend ETFs yeah, at so the moment. We so. go into the depth about yeah. what the different ETFs actually do inside them and how you can put them together. So go and check that out. Just as a reminder, any of the questions that we do answer here or basically anywhere across the RAS network is strictly limited to general financial information only. So if we give you an answer to a question, we don't know your personal circumstances, so we can't uh, say if it's right for you. And if we answer someone else's question here on the podcast, uh, their situation is going to be different to your situation, which is going to be different to our situation. So we just answer it generally. Uh, head to our financial services guide or FSG, which is available on the RAS website uh, if you are, are unsure about what that means. We've even done a video, which is the most popular video ever created explaining the differences between personal financial advice and general financial advice and the facts. Who would have thought such a topic, you know, Kate? Yes, it has become a a lot more topical Explaining how that works. Uh, It's wonderful. So, Kate, first question is, it's one that we wanted to respond to personally, actually, and uh, I did respond to it via email personally, is reasons you might have a tax bill. Yes. So, some people by now, we're late in July now, so we'll have started receiving tax refunds. And we talked about in our episode of three things to do with your tax refunds, like different options, but- some people will be in a different boat. And as we mentioned, we were a bit of sort of joking about it, but might have to pay a tax bill. And I think it's important that we just elaborate. There's a lot of reasons why people have to pay tax bills and everyone's financial situation is different. So yeah. uh, I think it's just important to like um, point out some of the reasons people have tax bills. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because then- the question was like, well, why are you doing, why, are you, why do you guys have tax bills? Um, are you selling your shares and you're telling everyone to invest for the long term? Is there a disconnect between the two? Which is a fair question. Yeah. So I can tell you for sure, my tax bill has absolutely nothing to do with shares. It's actually from another job. It's like, like a side hustle that I have. Um, and that's basically how 
I got it. So, Kate, what are some of the other reasons you would you would have a tax bill rather than a tax refund? Yeah, so one of the biggest reasons the ATO actually points out on the website is people that have multiple jobs and what happens is sometimes people claim the tax-free threshold yep. from multiple jobs and therefore not enough tax is being withheld and so they get to the end of the financial year and they have to pay the difference of what they actually owe versus what they paid during the year. Yep. So... Um, Ticking that tax, the right boxes on your tax declaration form is important. Another reason that's happened to a friend is they didn't tick the box that they had a HEX help debt and so their employer didn't withhold more money to pay for their contributions to their HEX um, debt. So that's also one reason why you might have uh, money owing at tax time. Um, if you've got a bonus during the year, if you've got some freelance income, if you've been side hustling and doing some Uber driving on the weekends yep. on top of your Air main tasker, job. Whatever. Yep. If you've had some dividends or distributions, which is something that I and many other of our listeners have probably received during the year. Um, yep. you might have there might have been a merger or a takeover, you might have been forcibly paid out money and your shares have been sold. Um even if you sold things like shares or investment properties, you might have sold crypto during the year, you may have made capital gains. And so there's heaps of reasons, and this is not an exhaustive list, that you might have a tax bill. Basically, the only reason you don't end up with a tax bill is if you are on PAYG. So if you, um, if you work for an employer and they hold tax for you at exactly the right rate, or if you are a, a subcontractor, but the person that you contract to still is liable because some people can um, have an ABN like tradies can have an ABN an invoice a builder um, but because they do the predominant amount of their work through that builder the builder is still liable to pay them super and whatever they may not necessarily be with it, required to withhold tax but there are certain arrangements where that might be the case um, and it's so long as they're paying for you you should get a refund because you're going to take deductions away from that income and then you're going to get a refund. But for people like myself, Kate, that have do some consulting work on the side, I'm not withholding tax from that throughout the year, even though I should be. And so that income is going to be taxed at June 30th and that's why I pay tax. Yeah. So that's yep. a pretty simple So lots of reasons. We're still long-term investors. Still long-term investing. The yeah. life of managing your money and having different income sources does lead to having tax bills. Yes, it does. Um, okay, let's get into the important uh, business here on the Australian Finance Podcast, and that is me tapping some paperwork on the the desk. Yeah, you're feeling very important. I'm very important. I've got some white paper here. Very important. It's actually Kate's. Anyway, um, so the next question. <laughs> if you're not watching, I'm. This is on video. Anyway, it's not great content. Owen. Yeah, it's not great. Um, content. The next question was about stake lending, and we okay. had this in our Facebook community, and I received a few other questions because Stake came out and say said that we're going to start offering the ability for you to um, have your stocks lent out and potentially receive some extra passive income. Yeah, so Stake is going to stake your investments basically just yeah. like they do in crypto land um basically that's what's going to happen behind the scenes we um, actually recorded <laughs> we recorded this full episode <laughs> yes we recorded this last week uh and then a couple of hours later state came out with another email saying uh hold up guys we're putting a pause on this program until we iron out all the kinks and make sure it's ready to go so we've slightly changed it because it would have been active by now yeah um but our main the thing that stood out to us the most about it was that it was going to be an opt-out system so if you didn't opt out you were automatically part of this stock lending program yep. and this is particularly uh 
for people who use stake US to buy and sell US shares or ETFs and things like that. Yeah. So basically the way that it works is your investments can be lent to someone else and that person or that institution that takes control of your shares for a little while, they pay a fee and that fee is then shared back through stake and back to you. And we, it, was let, it was revealed that uh, 20% of that income would be shared, that stake receives, would be shared back with the end user. And they gave some examples, didn't they, Kate? Yeah, of the... The amount of money that you might be able to earn. Yeah. So they were saying potentially, and you've got no guarantee that the stocks that you have in your portfolio would actually even be lent out. There might not be the demand for that. They might have enough people there. So it's all very much um, approximate estimated numbers. But they were saying if you had, say, Mm $5,000 or US worth of Tesla Mm -hmm. and that was lent out for the entire year, you might earn 75 US dollars that year for being part of the program. So there are a few... Okay, assumptions here. One is you, it's Tesla, so that that's that's. It depends. The rate that you receive depends on the security that you hold. Um, your. Well, they didn't even use a stock as an example. I was just inserting oh, okay. that oh, okay. in, so they didn't even say what company. So. So this would assume that it's just five thousand dollars. Yeah, it just yeah. says hypothetical stock value on loan. Okay, so then you've got to have it loaned out for the full year, which might not be the case. Um, and uh, you don't necessarily know, like this is still hypothetical um, and you might never have any of your shares loaned out because the shares that you have might not be the ones that are valuable to other people. So, Kate, can you explain just at the high level how securities lending works? Yeah. So let's say you as a short seller want to borrow some shares to cover one of your positions and I have the shares in my stake or whatever brokerage account and I've I'm in the opt-in so I've got stock lending turned on so my broker is free to lend my stocks out so there's quite a few middlemen and people involved here so we won't get into that because it got a bit complicated when we tried to explain it like that last week but essentially the middle person will facilitate lending my stocks that I have in my portfolio to you for a certain period of time. Yep. And in return, you'll put up collateral. So you'll say, okay, I'm going to put this cash or these other stocks in a separate account. So there'll be a custodian on the side who will hold on to that collateral. So you're putting up 102% in this case of collateral. So even so if, if something goes wrong with my ability to repay you, yeah, they can then take I can take the collateral. Yep. And so there's probably a lot of stuffing around and paperwork and things involved there, but Mm -hmm. That's how it would work. And so you put the collateral up and in return for you getting to borrow my shares, you also pay a fee. So that's what Stake's saying is this is the passive income you might get into your account is you as the person, the end borrower is paying a fee for the privilege. And so there's middle people involved that help facilitate this transaction. So I don't personally know who is borrowing on the other end. Um, and they will help make that happen. And so there's Mm. collateral there as a security. Um, There's a lot of intricacies to this as we got involved in, things like voting. I can't vote while you have my stocks. And so if I'd want to vote, I'd have to opt out. Um, These loans can be turned off same day. So if I wanted to vote tomorrow, I could turn out, Mm -hmm. opt out, I'd get my holdings back, then I could vote 
opt back in and maybe have my stocks lent out again. Yep. And Stake's pretty good with the voting too. They tell you if there's things coming up. Yeah, I think they're the most, they're right in my inbox. Your vote matters, vote on this. So that's good because I think shareholders should be interested in what their company's doing and actually take an interest in voting on key issues, especially if this company's making up a, like a portion of your portfolio. The, the big thing is that underneath the surface of Stake, there's a company called Drive Wealth. And the company Drive Wealth is the company that basically does all of this. Yeah. So they, if you use Stake US right now, they're your broker partner in the US. Yep. So Stake doesn't have its own US operations. It's using a partner, Drive Wealth, and other Australian brokerage platforms also use Drive Wealth. Shares is yes. Drive Wealth. It yep. might be some more. I haven't gone that far down the track, but um, they Drive Wealth are the ones that last year said that they now offer stock lending. So platforms such as Stake can now offer that to their users. Because people are wondering. Well, stake's basically free if you've got money in your US account. It doesn't cost you to buy or sell. Well, here's one way that yeah. Drive Wealth and stake can make money from you. Yeah. So at the moment, stake makes money off the exchange rate. So they add a bit onto that. Yep. And they also make money off like their stake premium levels and things like that. And they also have a self-managed super fund feature they've added. But this would be another revenue source for them because they're not paying you everything they get. So there's lots of Middle, make, middle people, so drive well for getting a cut for facilitating this, the custodians getting a cut, there's probably auditors and all sorts of things involved getting a cut for facilitating this program, but you are getting a small portion of that and Stake is also getting income from this program. The big, the big issue is that people don't necessarily understand the risks involved, but what Stake is there, it seems from an AFR article, what they're trying to suggest is that, well, this kind of is should be a more normalized thing like this is what institutional investors do we've got a white paper here from vanguard no yeah. one from blackrock so they this do actually they do it. sent us down a rabbit hole because it's a really it's a trillion dollar program running globally it's like securities lending is massive in the us it's big in australia too but it's happening with your super funds and your large hedge funds like you're not hearing about it as an individual investor yeah. so this is the first time that a broker is actually bringing our attention to this matter but yeah vanguard also do this so they've got their own securities lending program in australia within their etfs so if you want to learn more about how this all works like Vanguard have their own rules and procedures to make sure it's a really safe and secure program that they're running. But there's a one paper called Australian Securities Lending Key Considerations by Vanguard Australia. So I'll put that in the show notes. So that really breaks down what is securities lending, how they do it, how that brings your fees down. Because mm -hmm. instead of having it as a revenue source, after their fees and costs for running the program, they put that money back into... Lowering fees, which is why yeah. the fees on, say, Vanguard VAS are actually lower than they look. So the actual fees mm. you pay will actually be lower than yep. the 10, 0.1% that you see there. There's also another paper from the Reserve Bank, which is all about the equity securities lending market in Australia, which also has some charts and things. So that's quite good if you want to read about it from a different perspective bit more of an independent perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was also another interesting paper I found from BlackRock, which was looking about securities lending through the sustainability lens. Because as I mentioned, you can't vote, uh, vote. in some of these yeah. things. And so for big ETF providers like BlackRock, voting, they have a lot of power when it comes to their vote. And so they- So this if they're actually, lending the stock out. They can't vote on key issues. So this paper looks at um, how they view uh, securities lending for a sustainability and an ESG lens and how they weigh up the costs of not being able to vote on key issues 
versus having the securities lending program mm. being able to keep costs down for investors. So I'll put all three of those in the show notes. So if this does interest you for when stake do open their securities lending program, and if they do, I'm not sure what's happening right now. It's just on pause. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say these are three papers that do give you a really good overview of how it all works and you can understand them. They're not yeah. completely completely ununderstandable like some papers i read okay so yeah so there are some things like so first of all you can opt out of this stake thing you can go into your settings there's about like five or six different steps to if you don't if you're not happy with it like if you just yeah. say i don't really care about stock lending i don't want the additional risk and i don't care about the additional income uh, you can do that or if voting is really important to you and just having a yeah. simple knowing because you're going to have to pay tax on any income you get through this program so it's if it's still there, it was there a few weeks ago when I opted out, but you go through Wall Street account settings, trade settings, and then stock lending settings, and you can opt out. Okay. But that was a few before I actually went on this deep dive, so I'm not quite sure what my decision would be now, but I'll have to think about it a little bit more. But yep. it definitely opened my eyes to the whole thing. Yeah, but and at the end of the day, the risk is pretty low. Um, yeah. Of, like, the, the, the risk is that Drive Wealth, which is the company that facilitates all this, basically goes bust because they can't you know, get the money back from people and all these yeah. things happen. And then you have to chase money down through like multiple layers of bureaucracy yeah. in an overseas location, um, which is unlikely. Um, yeah, because you've got the collateral. It's, it's something happens there with drive wealth and the custodian and things get a bit complicated. Yeah, um, but there'll still have yeah. to be people come in and- But usually this is happening yeah. like automated on a daily basis. It was a very streamlined system generally from what I've yeah. read, but yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, if you're concerned about this, you might also just be concerned about stake in general, right? Like if that's your concern, well, why would you have a stake account at all then if you're worried about you know this going wrong? So um, so yeah, there's, there's that. Um, the other thing is if you do, you can opt out on a case-by-case -case basis. So you can basically have, you can turn your thing off for a little while, turn it back on. But the problem is that um, DriveWell, that's not good for them. Um, the, the founder of Stake in the AFR suggested that um, they had to make it opt out and basically make everyone do it because that would be the only way that they reach scale and um, actually make it viable for them to do so yeah so it's interesting if you've if you do have a concern about this write into us and let us know what you think jump in the facebook group or yeah we did ads. quite a lot of research into this but we uh we've paired it back because it's on pause so yes, it's we something it's we might look at more once there's some more information available and it does go ahead this could be commonplace in the future though um it could be uh, yeah and it's probably the only way to do it is to solve it through technology which is um, what's happening so yeah i think it just got everyone's attention because it's the first time this has really happened on a retail front and so not many people knew about it and i didn't know much about it either mm -hmm. i knew it existed in theory but i didn't know the intricacies so we'll yeah, unpack it more it's been happening with the fund managers for yeah a very long time as long as i've been investing um so hi owen and kate this is the next question uh, i'm new to shares and looking to invest for both the medium and long term long term would be super slash property and over time progressively more shares in the medium term is for my kids one hundred and ten thousand dollars i think that maybe is for their education um I have 20K now and want to add 30K from an offset account now and then continue to add approximate appropriate amounts regularly. It should force the required saving with some return while allowing liquidity to be used as needed over the 2024 to 2033 period. So that must be when the kids are going through school. Can you explain what needs to be considered when investing using debt? 
and also when investing for medium term where funds will likely be needed regularly. Kate, you go first. Yeah. So I think it's a good thing that you've really articulated your goals and timeframe because that's an important step when we're trying to figure out how we want to invest and if we want to be a high risk or a balanced investor, knowing your timeframe and your goals of what you actually want to use that money for is really important. And so if you're needing the money over the next decade, it's a little bit more of an interesting scenario because you'll need some of the money in the next few years and some of the money you won't need for 10 plus years. And so that changes your risk profile a little bit because there's some of the money you're going to need immediately. And we generally say, if you need the money in the next couple of years, you shouldn't be investing it, but you've also some of the money you're not going to need for 10 years. So that might mean you still invest, but you invest in a different risk profile. So I might not go out and invest in a high growth portfolio. I might look something a bit more balanced um, and maybe make sure you've got the, the cash you need for the next couple of years. And maybe you invest the slightly longer term funds. That's exactly what I was going to say. So in this instance, if the education expenses are in the next couple of years, that money should be in cash. So savings account, if you have a mortgage already, an offset account, um, and you should just be keeping the money there. Um, That's the best place to keep that. And then outside of that, you would probably have a pretty aggressive investment allocation. So you'd probably have like, I don't know, like say 90-10, as in 90% of the the rest of the money is long-term like shares and 10% is like bonds or something safer like that. That's a 90-10 portfolio. Um, But that won't need to kick in for a few years. And then basically what you want to do is you you just want to keep a buffer of, um, you know, a few years ahead of you where the money kind of trickles back into um, the offset account or whatever you're using as like your liquidity thing uh, for using debt i wouldn't the only type of debt that i think should be recommended by like a financial plan or whatever is basically a line of credit on a mortgage so uh, on a house so basically what the way it works is if you have say a million dollar property for round figures and you've got um five hundred thousand dollars paid off already like this is strictly hypothetical most banks lend you up to 80 percent. that's why you have a 20 percent deposit so 80 percent. so that means there'd be three hundred thousand dollars the difference between your loan and what you could borrow to redraw. And then you could use that as a line of credit to go and invest in something else, basically. Um, if you use a line of credit, a proper line of credit, an accountant and a, um, uh, like a mortgage broker or someone like that will help you set one of these up. Um, it's actually good because then you can use a loan to buy shares. But most of the smaller amounts of money are things like margin loans, personal loans, or just weird types of investment loans that are just not feasible for most people because they're actually they're actually very risky because if the shares fall, there's typically rules built into them that you have to sell the shares and you have to give your money back. And that's typically when you don't want to sell. So I would say it's a pretty risky thing to do for most people unless you have some sort of secure asset. Because if you just think about it like this, the interest rates on a mortgage are very low versus the interest rates on one of these loans that you know, brokers provide or whatever. They're crazy. Um, Warren Buffett says, what did he say? He says something like, um, smart investors don't need debt. And if you're not a smart investor, don't use, that. you shouldn't even think about it or something like that. It's something like, it's like uh, he turns the, the, the logic around. And basically it's that if you're smart with your money, you don't need to use a loan to invest well. Um, and if you're not going to be smart with your money, well, you know, yeah. There's other things to worry about. You can Google stories of people that have been margin called in 08, 09 and other inf- unfortunate times. Yep. And they've had exactly. their whole portfolio kind of sold out from underneath them. Yep. So the next question is more 
uh, around brokers. This is a question that we get all the time. It's probably our most uh, common question, but this one in particular is a bit different. They ask, you know, um, should I be paying more for a broker? Like we've just talked about one, which was Stake or Perla or Self-Wealth or Comsec or Nabtrade or whoever. Should we be paying more because they're safer or better? Yeah. I guess they're saying sometimes you get what you pay for. Um, there is something to be said for some of the more expensive brokers. For example, Comsec. There's a lot of features on that platform and a lot of tools, which you can use that platform for free and use a lot of those features for mm. free without actually using that platform. But I always advocate having at least two brokerage accounts because if something goes wrong and one platform you can't necessarily place a trade for that day and this is the day you want to invest. You could invest on another platform or something like that. And so sometimes if there's technical issues, the big brokers like Comsec have huge engineering teams and they can fix these problems a lot faster. If it's an issue with the ASX or Chess or something, that can't necessarily, it's not the broker's fault necessarily. Like it might affect all the brokers. Um, was it last year, a couple of years ago when the the market was down for yeah. a few hours? Yeah. Um, so that affected everybody. So no matter which broker you were with, you would have been affected from that. But there is, yeah, I do think there's something to be said with some of the larger brokers. I mean, I use a variety of different brokers. I'll use different brokers for different reasons. Um, if you're investing small amounts on a regular basis, using a lower cost broker is probably better. But if you're doing maybe long-term investing and you want something that is pretty dependable, maybe you're happy to pay a slightly higher fee. And we're talking here about brokers that give you holder identification numbers. Yeah. So um, Stake, ASX, Perla, Self-Wealth, Comsec, they all give you holder identification numbers. Yeah, whereas Vanguard, uh, Superhero, Sharesies, they do not. No. Um, so those ones. So in, when we talk about the security of brokers, what we want is a holder identification number. So we do want that because that's basically the stamp that says that's your share um, and that's registered at the share registry with your name on it basically. Yeah, and it makes it very easy now um, to transfer those shares if you want to between brokers. Yeah. So, so yeah, and the, basically the idea here is you can have redundancy too. You could have one broker that does your ETFs and you don't really care if the trades are there and then and you might have another broker that is your go-to broker for something that's like I need yeah. it reliable, I need it now kind of thing. Um, you know, I think the fee race to the bottom is is getting a bit ridiculous. Most investors are happy to pay ten bucks, you know, between ten and three bucks, ten and six bucks. To be honest, it doesn't really matter too much. Um, so for the most part, I mean, ten bucks is great. And um, gone are the days where the broker used to charge you like two percent or hundreds of dollars. Comsec kind of still gets away with really sometimes high fees for the US business. But um, yeah, I mean, those are, yeah, yeah, those are pretty much done. Okay, diversification. When does it start costing you? Dear Owen and Kate, thank you for the great podcast. I was wondering if you had an opinion about the following question. When does your diversification strategy cost you more than it reduces your risk? And this led me down another rabbit hole of the term diversification okay, yeah, where you diversify to the point and add so many investments to your portfolio because you keep trying to diversify that you end up reducing your returns because you're spending more on brokerage you're potentially overlapping holdings and weighting your portfolio in a way that you don't want it to be weighted so you may buy multiple like you might buy vdhg which is a diversified ETF where you have Australian and US and other types of holdings but you also might invest in a 200 and mm. without realizing it, suddenly you're overweighting your portfolio to Australia. And that might be what you want to do. You might want to do that 
on purpose, but you might not realize and you just think I want to buy lots of different ETFs because if I have 20 ETFs, therefore I'm diversified. But most cases when you buy 20 ETFs, you are overlapping holdings and you mm. probably will end up building a portfolio that doesn't really match what you had in your mind. Yeah. So yeah, we've got, well said, we've got ETFs now allow people to diversify really quickly. The basic idea of diversification is that we want things to move in different ways or at least not all be exposed to the same risk imagine you buy five investment properties they're all on the same street that street is a flood prone area um, and it floods that's all of your risk um all your properties getting smashed whereas if you had them just on different streets or in different suburbs or different parts of the country they wouldn't all be associated with the same one event um, and that's the basic principle of investing uh, there used to be the rule it's called, called the, the rule of 30 or the race to 30 which was you own 30 different stocks you diversified um, now, um, then there's academic studies that show, um, beyond 10 positions, um, like beyond 10 different investments, um, the diversification benefit starts to rapidly diminish. So I think you get about 70% of the diversification benefit at 10 holdings or something like that. Um, and by the time you get to 20 or 30, it's basically... Yeah. There's no benefit. And a lot of these studies are about individual share investing. Individual so when it comes to ETF investing, if you've got 30 different ETFs, I would probably say you're over diversified yeah, at that it's point. It's way too many. It's too complicated. And yeah. you're creating ha- like a headache for yourself at tax time. It's a lot more admin. You're getting more paperwork. You're getting more dividends, distributions coming through. Um, so, I mean, in our core portfolio, the middle bit that we use for maybe 80 90 percent of our portfolio that has our exposure to australian and us i mean i probably wouldn't have more than 10 i think i have seven maybe yeah i mean five to ten is enough yeah you probably you know some people maybe even argue that something you need two or three in there you know like a diversified etf um maybe a listed investment company and i don't know what else you'd put in there but you can like our etf portfolios inside rask etfs are only around about five and you can add optional extras in if you want to, yeah. but they're super simple. And that's really all you need for the core of a portfolio. Um, I would if I would advocate to every listener to have basically two different brokerage accounts. I'd have one set up that's optimized for ETFs in the core of your portfolio. And that might be ETFs. It could be, you might put listed investment companies or just whatever long-term yeah. really core holdings go in there. And then have another brokerage account, which is your satellite portfolio. That's probably where you spend most of your time. Yeah, that's um, where you get to scratch the itch, invest in a thematic ETF. But yeah. say you've got a particular view on healthcare companies, maybe you buy a th- healthcare thematic ETF in there, or yeah. you go, this is the stock that is going to be the next afterpay. You have my, found it. Yeah. You would do that in a separate portfolio. So it doesn't, what happens in your satellite portfolio doesn't alter your long term ETF core portfolio. And I think I'm more and more becoming an advocate of keeping your satellite and your core in two different brokerage accounts and not having the core portfolio on your phone, not looking at every day because knowing the price of one of your ETFs is a dollar higher or a dollar lower than it was yesterday does not really help you, especially if you've got a long-term time horizon. So, um, And also you might automate them in different ways. So with my satellite portfolio, I won't automate any of that because these are usually manual decisions after I've researched or looked through things or written down why I'm going to buy that company. Yeah. Well, if I do, I'll let you know on. Um, But my core portfolio, I've automated that because it's not something I need to change my decision on on a regular basis. Maybe I check in once a year to see if I want to rebalance or change my strategy, but 
in the long term, it's not something that needs to be looked at daily. So I think there can be a danger if you're looking at ETFs and your satellite shares and thematics in the same portfolio. Definitely. Serving be a different role. Yeah. You can think that, oh, I need to do this, I need to move now. Yeah, it doesn't really work that way. So I'd just say, you know, for most investors, um, five five ETFs is probably enough. Maybe ten if you're you yeah. probably don't need 10 to be honest five is probably enough for the core of a portfolio yeah maybe some people have different views on having like small caps in emerging markets and infrastructure in their portfolio yeah and they or like australian and global bonds so it it does depend i most of the portfolios the core portfolios i see that are diversified um if you look at uh super funds or you look at portfolio builders that you can google online i'll put them in the show notes but beta shares blackrock vanguard and robo advisors will often publish their example using their own products usually yeah. of what a core portfolio could look like but usually they're five to ten i have not seen any that have more than ten yeah um yeah just be careful with those tools because a lot of them um will talk about different etfs that uh, make them very good fees. So if you go to a barber and ask for a haircut, they're going to uh, do I need a haircut? They're, of course, they're going to say yes. Um, and that's kind of the yeah. outcome here. But I think um, it's a good starting point though. If you're like, oh, I yeah. don't know what a high growth portfolio looks like, look at 10 different high growth portfolios and see how they make them up. They might put it, be shoving in an ETF that doesn't really form part of a high growth portfolio, but they're just putting it in there because that's their only product that they can fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why sometimes I like looking at Robo. Uh, advisor portfolios even um you can have a look at like raise invest they actually put the breakdown of the etfs i'm pretty sure they name them as well for what their high growth portfolio looks like so i'll put all these examples in the show notes i think they're a great education tool if you're at the very beginning and going what does a high growth portfolio actually look like you can use as many sources as you can to start figuring out what that looks like and then if you go okay as part of my high growth portfolio, I want to be invested mm-hmm. in the top Australian companies. Then you can go on that journey to compare ASX 200 or maybe 300 ETFs and see which one might be the most suitable for your high growth portfolio. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, and from there, you can work backwards. So you can say, okay, well, you know, if you're starting with $10,000 today, how much would I need to put in each one? Uh, it's actually... Yeah, pretty straightforward once you get the hang of it. And then you can say, if I've got 10,000, I'm going to keep 1,000 for uh, my satellite portfolio and I'm going to be a bit more um, you know, risky out there. But that's yeah. a really simple way to think about it. I, we do have a lot of our members that write in and they are share investors from decades and they have big positions in those shares because they've done well and they can't sell them. That's a different scenario. If, you, if, you've, got, if you've inherited a portfolio or you've got a portfolio of shares that have been built up over the years, that's different. Um, but you would still try and have some balance between what's diversified, what's not. So, you know, you would look at your entire portfolio and say, okay, this is my satellite, that's in my core. In my core, am I still, you know, do I still have, you know, 80% in shares, Australia and global, and then 20% in bonds or cash or something like that? I think the big message is that no one's portfolio looks the same, maybe unless they're using the same robo-advisor, but everyone's going to have a different amount invested, have different goals. And I think it's important not to race to the perfect portfolio because there is no one perfect portfolio. So you're just finding something that is pretty good for you because you can get obsessed with finding the perfect portfolio and it can cause you a lot of tax implications and cost you brokerage because you keep switching between things trying to find a better option so i think you want to find something that suits your needs and is like pretty much there but doesn't have to be perfect i like it and if you do want to see which etfs we've included in our portfolios and which ones i like uh, you can join rask etfs for 49 bucks using the 
coupon code AFP at checkout. And we have over 3,000 members there. Over 3,000 members now, yeah. I think by the end of the year we're going to have quite a few more. So um, it's fantastic. So jump in there and there's a new discussion forum too if you want to say hello. It's agnostic to ETF providers. Yeah, we we are independent. We don't care which ETF providers... Where the ETFs come from, we just want the best ones. Yeah. So um, that means that we are kind of like independent of them and yeah. we so can be honest. So it gives you, if you want to see what a balanced hey. and what a high growth ETF portfolio looks like or an ethical version or a really simple version or some of Owen's favorite thematic ETFs, yep. uh, I'd recommend checking that out. I'm going to start naming and shaming in the future too. So have some. Uh... Oh, gosh. Owen just <laughs> wants us to stir up controversy, which is not what I want to do. All publicity is publicity. No, no um, I don't think so. But anyway, if you have questions for future Q&As, uh, we're doing a super Q&A, yes. hopefully in the next month or two, if I organize myself. So send that through to podcast at rask, rask.com.au. And when we- she says super, she means superannuation. It is, it's going to be super as in like we're going to – Oh, yeah. It's yeah, going to be super great, but it's also going to be about superannuation. So you got to rate it in. It. But, um, yeah, <laughs> we don't necessarily uh, respond to everything in the podcast inbox, but I do read all the emails and – take some of the common themes and turn them into episodes and Q&As and also join our Facebook community if you haven't already to ask your questions there and check out our Get Started Investing course because that is a good place to start. Good nudge, Kate. Get Started Investing. Plenty of resources here for everyone who is interested in investing. Yeah, we've talked about in this Q&A, we've talked about stakes lending, we've talked about tax bills, about diversified portfolios, so much uh, and there are so many great things to talk about. Um, so thank you for sending in your questions. Yeah, get started investing course available on Rask Education, totally free. Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rask.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community, by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.